When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, fellow time travelers. Great to have you with me again as we travel around the world through time and space. Big thanks to everyone who leaves messages on their podcast provider. It's brilliant seeing your comments and great for attracting new listeners. So get writing and keep writing. Also, just before we get started, I'd like to say a heartfelt thank you to everyone who has signed up to my Patreon site. It's the support you give that makes the rest of the podcasts possible. If you're not a member yet and you want to join, simply go to patreon.com, search for me by name, find my site, part with a bit of cash and sign up. You get access to two exclusive vodcasts every week, quizzes and prizes, and perhaps best of all, you become part of an exciting community of free-thinking time travellers who could want for more. Okay, now it's time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on another episode of my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. There is the awareness within it of individuals, but they are literally, metaphorically, being swallowed up by the greater entity, which is the empire. Insulated from the rest of the world by a natural boundary of great mountains, a huge land of battling territories swept up in all-consuming war, Centuries of deadly conflict and bloodshed are finally brought to an end by a dynamic leader. Peace, stability and cohesion reign. A unified state is born and at its head, the first emperor of China. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode, you took us to the Americas as they were unspooling the mysteries of deep time. Where are we this week? Afternoon, Paul. We're hopping continents again, taking a massive leap from the Americas to Asia. It's 210 years BC, the time in the West when Rome's empire is on the rise. But in Asia, we're focusing in on a moment when a massive, magical city is being sealed and guarded by an army of thousands of terracotta warriors and deadly crossbows. We're in the Shanxi province as the first emperor of China is laid to rest.
Hey, Paul. Always lovely to hear your dulcet tones. For this part of the love letter to the world, we're in China. I endeavoured, when I was looking at the story of the world, to think, right, it literally has to be the story of the world. And civilization, by whatever means, sprung spontaneously into existence in that part of the world that we come to know as China. It's the usual story. It's like, you know, 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, something starts to crystallise there that, that becomes eventually the thing that we would know as civilization. So we're in China for this one. And uh, the moment in question, we get to the moment in question right away, is the, is the death of the first emperor of China. The man's name is Qin Shi Huang. Qin, I can't speak Chinese, obviously, but Qin is usually spelled if you see it in a Western book, Q-U-I-N. But but sometimes you'll see it C-H apostrophe N, C-H apostrophe I-N, spelled various ways, but it's usually Q-U-I-N, and it's pronounced Qin, Qin Shi Huang. And he, he died on or about the 10th of September, 210 years BC, before the birth of Jesus Christ. And a couple of months later, because he, he died elsewhere, he died within his territory, and they had to get his body back to where a tomb had been prepared for him, and it had been being prepared for him for some considerable time because it was truly mighty. If you think along the lines of the way that the uh, Egyptian pharaohs prepared for their afterlife and they had these pyramids constructed, well, Qin Shi Huang had, had set in motion many years before something similar. In the Shanxi province of northwest China, he had had this uh, tomb prepared for himself, which... It boggles the mind, but it was some kind of pyramidal structure within which there was a tomb. And his body, wherever he died, his body was transported and brought back to where this tomb had been being prepared for him. And his body was was prepared and placed inside this great structure. And it appears... It is there now in, in the Shanxi province of northwest China as a hill. If you go there now, it looks like this, this feature that is supposed to contain the tomb of the first emperor of China looks like a hill. That's the scale of it. It looks like a natural feature in the landscape. And any sort of geometrically perfect form that it had at the time has been softened by the passage of 2,000 and more years, so that it now looks like a, a, a hill covered in vegetation. Modern China won't let anybody near it. Okay, so it, it's, it's said to contain the tomb of the first emperor, but no one has been anywhere near it, certainly not in the modern era. Whether or not it was penetrated and pillaged in ancient times is anybody's guess. But this this feature is there in the landscape 
and it's supposed to be where the first emperor is buried. Everyone will know the next bit of this. In, in 1974, some farmers, because the you know it's it's rural, it's remote territory, populated by 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 farmers in in the modern era. Um, and in 1974, some farmers were, I think they were prospecting for a well. I think they were digging in search of water. And they came across the first of the Terracotta Army. The tomb, the mausoleum to, to Qin Shi Huang, was also surrounded by a vast necropolis. Miles! The scale of this thing... I don't think is is determined to this day, but the, the the scale of it is awesome. So apart from the structure at the at the centre, it was surrounded by a hinterland, a necropolis, with all sorts of ritual features associated with the first emperor, and some of it was a buried army, rendered in terracotta, a clay army, also horses and chariots. It's an extraordinary feature. At at the moment, there are thousands upon thousands of these terracotta soldiers, life-size figures, all part of the force, the presence, gathered to protect the the first emperor. So it it, it gives you some sort of sense of the regard in which this individual was held. Now, these soldiers, the discovery of these soldiers was was an early clue. No doubt people living there or thereabouts were already aware of the significance of the area. But one of these things that people in folklore and the rest of it, they knew that the tomb of the first emperor was there. But the discovery of the terracotta army, some of the terracotta army, brought the whole presence back to the light of day. Obviously, archaeologists would like to get in amongst this thing, would like to get into the tomb and see what's actually in there. But no one's been allowed in. And all that we have is testament, descriptions of the tomb, by historians working within, at least one historian working within about a hundred years of the sealing, the, the closure of the tomb. And what's described is a version of the empire, but in miniature. So underneath this structure, whatever it is, if you got inside, up in the ceiling, in some form, apparently, are constellations, a representation of the night sky, heavenly bodies, now, you let your imagination run riot as to how that might have been achieved at the time. On the ground, though, the landscape, so palaces, towers, hills and valleys rendered, however, rivers and lakes and seas and waterfalls of mercury, <laughs> okay, liquid mercury. Let your imagination run right. It, it, it's impossible to know what was or was not there, but the, the, in terms of the way it was described, it was a rendering, an interpretation in miniature of the emperor's empire. It was into that in some way that he was that his tomb was laid to rest. It's an extraordinary concept within the within the tomb. Uh, more of the terracotta army. Uh, more horses, more chariots, more figures already and willing to defend, crossbows and other weaponry cocked and loaded with bolts, positioned with tripwires so that if anybody was to penetrate the tomb, kind of Indiana Jones style, these things would be triggered 
and apparently all of this was left in readiness. But because nobody has been allowed inside, it's impossible to tell what, if anything, of that was there. But it's a, it's a wonderful story. But if you think about Qin Shi Huang as this first emperor, as this considerable figure, it's also important to note that according to the same accounts, he didn't go into the afterlife alone. And so thousands, let's say, if not at least many hundreds of servants, slaves, went into the tomb with him. And either they were killed and put into the tomb dead, or they were somehow led into, herded into the tomb and sealed inside it, you know, to die in the darkness. But in any event, when that tomb was sealed, when the darkness fell, something in that moment, in that moment of the story of the world, something crystallised and became solid. And it was that idea that in the version of civilization that was in China, the individual, the, the single person, was subject to the greater entity that was the empire. The individual was swallowed in the same way as a drop of rain falling in the ocean. The individual might have been there, but was subsumed within the greater mass of China. It's important in the context of the way in which China is and always was different to pay attention to the terracotta army. The bodies of the soldiers were cast from moulds, so to some extent they're identical, they're mass-produced, the bodies. But the faces on every soldier uh, are individual and unique. So, so each face was the work of an artist, and they show young old, happy, sad, fearful, determined, all different expressions are there, which is important to bear in mind. The artists were paying attention to the individuality of soldiers in the makeup of an army, but all of that was to be swallowed up, literally, by the tomb of the emperor. So you see in that, in that moment, along with the, the human slaves and servants who were placed into the tomb, alive or dead, there's also the terracotta army. So that there is the awareness within it of individuals, but they are literally and metaphorically being swallowed up by the greater entity, which is the empire. So let's go back to the individual in question, Qin Shi Huang. He was born around 259 BC. He was made king of Qin in 247 BC. And he was born into a period of unrest, of constant tribulation and violence, a period known as the period of warring states, which had been going on from at least 400 years BC. It's all happening against a backdrop of another version of civilization. You have to think, first of all, of the territory. It's not known as China, not in the beginning. 
but a vast swathe of territory, bigger than the United States of America, somewhere around the, the middle of the second millennium BC, a dynasty called the Shang, a family, a clan, achieved dominance, and they're able to place the shadow of their hand over thousands of square miles of territory on the banks of the Yellow River, which is one of the main rivers that flows through China. But the, the heartland of the Shang is in central China. They dominate all of that for about seven centuries. Okay, from, from somewhere around the first half of the second millennium BC, the Shang are dominant. They are followed, they are overpowered, or, or they run out of, in that way of civilization, the Shang, through decadence, through exhaustion, whatever, they run out of steam and they are replaced by the Zhou, Z-H-O-U, the Zhou. And they're there until about 700 years BC, and then they lose control. It's a vast territory. It's a huge, you know, very difficult in terms of the technologies and the bureaucracies of the time to try and keep control of such a vast area. But they lose control of it around 700 years BC. And it, 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 this, is, this is what eventually seems to initiate the period of the Warring States. Constant, you know, internecine struggles, civil war, all the rest of it going on all the time. Around 221 years BC, Chen Shi Huang gains control. He gains total control. And that ends the period of warring states. In that moment, he has become the first emperor. And the first syllable or the first sound of his name is Qin. And it's Qin that becomes China. So he gives his name to China. By the time he comes to power, there are already, for example, walls in the north, in the north of the, of the territory that we would know as China. There are walls that have been erected by warlords and kings and independent rulers. They, they have built walls between themselves, between each other, and also against the presence of dangerous people from the north, Mongolia. So there's been a structure of walls built in piecemeal fashion across that territory. When Qin Shi Huang gains control in 221 BC, he sets an enormous project in train, which is to create the Great Wall of China. So those parcels of wall, those individual stretches of wall, he puts together a project to bring the whole thing together into one, and that's what becomes the Great Wall of China. It's, it's not completed by him, but it's set in train by Xi by Huang. I think the thing probably most important to note at this point is that that territory that we know as China, during that period, it was already a world apart. The classical world was already doing its thing. Mesopotamia was already doing its thing. Greece would come and go, ancient Greece. Uh, ancient Rome would come and go. A vast distance, and more importantly, geographically speaking, mountain ranges separated that ancient old world from what was happening in the territory that would come to be known as China. 
by about 600 years BC, overlapping the time of the formation of the Roman Republic, this character Confucius sets down his idea of how civilization should be. That by the time Confucius was setting down his idea, civilization in his part of the world was already as old as the civilization of ancient Egypt. So that in the story of the world so far, we've been, you know, we've been preoccupied with the old world, with Mesopotamia, with Babylon, with Persia, with ancient Greece, with ancient Rome. But it's important to note that off to the east, separated by vast distance, separated by mountain ranges, something else entirely was happening in China. And the, the, and the roots of a, of a separate and spontaneous civilization were happening there. So by the time you get to Confucius, writing down his ideas, dictating his ideas about what civilization should look like, fledgling civilization in his part of the world was already as old as Egypt. You know, he was, he was happening, his thinking was happening, cradled in a backdrop of already ancient ideas. But all of that distance and all of that separation from everything that was happening in the rest of the old world meant that the China that evolved was utterly different. So by the time we get to 221 BC and the end of the period of the Warring States and the emergence of Qin Shi Huang, it's an utterly, utterly different place. It's so different in every way imaginable from the old world that we have been familiar with. The emperors from Qin Shi Huang onwards believed that China was a world unto itself. And they believed that the rest of the world, wherever it was, was simply waiting for Chinese civilization, And when they would eventually receive visitors from that outer world, they received them as people that needed to learn about China. So anybody coming in from the outside was received as barbarians that, that needed to benefit from Chinese civilization, And it's all there, I think it's all there though, in that moment of the sealing up of the tomb of Qin Shi Huang with the slaves, with the servants who were in there with them, who either died of starvation and lack of water in the darkness or who were put to death beforehand. It's there on the faces of the terracotta soldiers. It's the idea that yes, China knew about the existence of individuals. It knew that everyone was unique and different. But all of that was subsumed by the necessity for everyone to accept the greater entity of China. And that belief to which every citizen was subject was of paramount importance and it made China different. And it's why China has remained different to this day. Clever, careful and canny, the Republic grows exponentially, ever richer and more powerful as the decades and then millennia roll on. A military commander of genius rises in Gaul. Full of defiance and ambition, he crosses the Rubicon River, becoming Cleopatra's lover as he sweeps to military victory. 
bringing totalitarianism to Rome. Hail Caesar! Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. podcast production. Okay. 